Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm very pleased to be joined by two greats of the modern labour movement, Alan Johnson, the former Home Secretary under Gordon Brown, and Andrew, or Lord Adonis, and we're talking about a semi-forgotten great of the labour movement who is Ernest Bevan, and he's the subject of Andrew's new biography, Ernest Bevan, Labour's Churchill. Welcome both. Great to be here. Andrew, can I start with you just saying, why do you call him Labour's Churchill? He was at Churchill's right hand during the war, literally at his right hand. It was Ernie Bevin who was mobilising the home fronts to a degree I hadn't realised until starting to study him properly while Churchill commanded the battlefront. He also was a Churchillian figure in two other respects. He had many of Churchill's personal characteristics, huge brilliance, larger than life, full of contradictions and all of that. But also, as uh, became very clear to me as I started writing about him, he was an imperialist. He was very much a Victorian imperialist. He was born in 1881, Churchill was 1875, so they were very similar generationally, and they had many of the same assumptions, and even though one was obviously an aristocrat and the other was a labourer's labourer, they were imbued by many of the same notions. The other point which is really interesting about them socially is that though Churchill was the grandson of a duke and Ernie was a labourer's labourer, neither of them went to university Both of them were, in a fundamental sense, self-made. Churchill's formative period was at Sandhurst and in the army. I mean, the northwest frontier in India was, in many ways, his education. And Ernie's was a drayman in Bristol, once he managed to escape from the farm. And then, of course, a trade union leader. And there's this very poignant episode, which I uh, record in the book, where at the end of the war, after they'd been shoulder to shoulder through these five turbulent and traumatic years. Winston Churchill, who is then Chancellor of the University of Bristol, which is where Ernie had been as a, as a, as a drayman all those years before, awards Ernie an honorary doctorate at Bristol. And this is the only time either of them ever had an, an association with a university. So there's, they're kind of parallel lives, and I hope I bring that out in the book. Alan, you reviewed this book for us and you describe kind of very early on in your review saying that you know you were you were kind of converted to Bevanism reading Alan Bullock's book and you sort of made a pilgrimage to his place of birth and there was sort of nothing there. Yeah yeah. I was a Bevanite rather than a Bevanite and I think one of the curses of uh, Ernie Bevan which Andrew points out is people continuously mixing him up with Nye Bevan. And they were very near namesakes, but very different characters. Bevan was Bevin's bête noire, as comes out in the book. Now, I found it astounding. I read the first volume of Bullock's great three-volume biography. It took 30 years to write. And the first volume was Ernest Bevin, trade unionist. And I was a newly elected trade unionist, you know, in my late 20s. And I was amazed at how little, after I'd read the book, how little Ernest Bevin was still remembered in the trade union movement, you know, let let alone in wider society. I mean, as Andrew 
points out, you know, what he did in the war was incredible and what he did afterwards as, as foreign secretary. But actually, the in those years, kind of between the wars, he was involved in everything. I mean, he was involved in everything, literally, from the return to the gold standard, which he was heavily critical of, the general strike, the abdication, he even had a role in that, as Andrew points out in his in his book, through the Daily Herald, which was the newspaper he basically founded and certainly boosted to the extent it became the first newspaper in the world to reach a circulation of a million. So such a huge figure and such a a man who the trade union movement should have been proud of, his, proud of his skill in negotiation, his impact on a much wider society than just the, just the trade union movement, and yet he was almost forgotten. Nothing on his... I went to Winsford, which, as Andrew points out in his book as well, was where Boris Johnson was brought up rather, rather strangely. But I, I went to the little village where Bevin was born on the centenary of his birth, 1981, you know, wife, three kids in a cottage on Exmoor. So let's go have a look and join in the celebrations. There was nothing. There was a a faded plaque outside the cottage he was born in. And then opposite was the post office. And I went in and said to the woman behind the post office about, have I missed something? The celebration of Ernest Bevin. She didn't she know who I was talking about. She'd never heard of it. She was serving in a post office opposite the cottage he was born in, which told me how overdue Andrew Adonis's book is now following Bullock's which is hardly not very accessible it's a great book yeah I was going to say because of its size it's not very accessible Andrew was it confronted with Bullock's book as a predecessor what made you think I've got something to add to this or was the thing you had to add brevity Bullock's book is two and a half thousand pages so certainly there's need for brevity I'm afraid nobody reads three volume biographies of two and a half thousand pages and I'm an enormous fan of Bullock it's a very great act of scholarship particularly the first volume which uh, Alan has just referred to this Alan Alan Johnson has just referred to which I think is Bullock at his best because he was an industrial relations historian and he really does get the whole of the very technical and, and labyrinthine business of creating a new union the amalgamation and so on however the last volume of Bullock's life appeared in the early 1980s and the first volume in 1960 and there's a huge amount that's been written about Bevin since and there are also big changes of perspective and view and though I'm enormously in admiration of uh, Alan Bullock I did find myself disagreeing with him quite a lot and in particular I disagreed with him profoundly in his uh, what he said about Ernie Bevin and anti-semitism I'm afraid Ernie Bevin like all great men he had flaws and one of them is very clear to me is is he was against the formation of the State of Israel and he was pretty anti-Semitic and Alan Bullock tries to excuse that. I looked at the evidence including quite a lot of evidence that Alan doesn't cite in his biography and I think maybe deliberately and I reached a different conclusion. Also it's very telling Alan Bullock who's also very much a man of his age just took for granted Ernie Bevin's imperialism and his hostility to the early stages of the formation of the European Union, the European Coal and Steel Community in the late 1940s. Now it's very clear to me from looking at the evidence that you didn't need to have a crystal ball to see that the British Empire wasn't going to be sustainable from the late 1940s. Indeed Clem Attlee probably had a better sense of that than did Ernie Bevin. It's Clem Attlee who took the key decision to withdraw from India with a a firm date which in fact Bevin opposed 
Bevin remains an unreconstructed imperialist thereafter, and Alan just takes that for granted, which I think is a mistake. Alan Buller also takes for granted that Britain was never going to have anything to do with the French and the Germans in the European coal and steel community, even though, as I bring out, I hope well, in the book, Ernie Bevin himself is absolutely indispensable to the formation of West Germany, whereas it looks to me, even at the time, as if the European coal and steel community was the logical next step after Britain sees off Stalin and gets him out of West Germany and West Berlin with the Berlin blockade and forms the state of West Germany, which of course we want to locate very strongly in a transatlantic democratic tradition. So I do reach some quite different conclusions from Alan Bullock whilst enormously admiring him. I think you also differ slightly, I mean you won't have read his review yet, but with this Alan, our Alan, Alan Johnson, Alan, you slightly take Andrew to task for his, well, attack on or diagnosis of Bevan's imperialism. Can you say how and in which way you think you differ on this subject? Yeah, well, it's, it's always difficult to find your heroes have feet of clay. And I think on the anti-Semitism point, as I say in the review, I think Andrew sets the case out, you know, for and against. And I think the evidence suggests that there was some anti-Semitism there. But on, on his imperialism, Bullock actually was closer to the time. And he points out, hang on, we'd, we'd just won the war, or we thought we'd won the war. And Churchill's great speech about fighting them on the beaches, etc. After that, he said to defend the British Empire. And as Bevin pointed out to the UN, quoted in Bullock's book, Britain had spent one day in three between 1914 and 1945 at war. One in every three days spent at war. We were the only one of the Allies who were in there from day one to the very last day. The idea that coming out of that, we didn't resist independence for India, as Churchill did, but the idea that coming out of that, we would tell the British people, and your great reward for this huge struggle is we're now going to divest ourselves of the empire. Particularly as the big problem is who would move in to the vacuum. So in the middle, other parts of the Middle East, apart from Palestine, who would move into that vacuum knowing that Stalin, you know, had aspirations uh, much wider than just, just Europe? So I think it's unfair. Plus, he was a Victorian, as Andrew's been pointing out. He and Churchill and Attlee were all Victorians. Bevin would have grown up in an age where the whole population of Britain were imperialists. He wouldn't have understood the allegation of being an imperialist as being something bad. So I think all of that, you know, has to be has to be taken into account. Can I just come back on that? Because of course, what Alan, this Alan, there are so many Alans. Sorry, it's, it's a bit complicated. <laughs> but what Alan Johnson says, of course, is correct. Obviously, imperialism was the dominant ideology of the time. And as Churchill famously said, I have not become the king's first minister in order to preside over the liquidation of the British Empire. And so clearly there was going to be an an imperial period after the war and this business of moving from empire to post-empire was always going to be very difficult. I wasn't in any way seeking to be unhistorical. All of the moves towards disengagement from the empire were very clear by the late 1940s and indeed they were debated, a lot of them by the Labour government of the late 1940s. India, which uh, Alan Johnson has just referred to, it's important to understand that Ernie Bevan was strongly against withdrawal from India in the late 1940s. He thought it was a mistake. He agreed with Churchill. It was Attlee who took the view that the only way Britain could stay 
in India was by force and that was unsustainable and in fact the same was true in other areas where there were very clear independence movements with local leaders. Can, can I give you an example because I'm a Cypriot. My dad who was a shop steward in Alan Johnson's union. Who I knew and, before I knew Andrew. <laughs> and by the way, by the way, can I just say this? Worships Alan Johnson, you know, in in, in the way that that both of us admire. Nick, Ernie Nick Bevin. was always the more sensible Adonis. He's a great man. But in the book, I record Jock Colville, who was Winston Churchill's great private secretary, saying to Bevin in the late 1940s, the right thing to do with Cyprus. And this is an amazing document which I'd never come across before, which for me is very personally moving. He said to Bevin, we should get out. And what we should do, because there is a there is a Greek Cypriot leadership that, that wants independence, we should do a deal over the British bases, which are important for defence strategy and maintain them as sovereign bases. And we should have a power sharing arrangement with the Turkish minority and on that basis we should leave. Now that is exactly what happens in 1960 but there's a missing link. The missing link is 15 years of yeah. war between the Greek Cypriot community in Cyprus and the British which I had never realised until reading these documents could have been avoided if in fact the more enlightened views which were held by many of those people running the empire in the late 1940s had held sway. So this debate which Alan Johnson and I are having is, is hugely important and I think goes to the heart also of our whole relationship with Europe and it's one that I think if we can bring this out in the discussion of the book will be immensely worthwhile. Can I just uh, say as well that on the question of Europe, Schumann, the, the great Schumann plan wasn't shared with Bevin, although it was very important. He was dealing with this whole issue in, in Europe at the time and was standing up to Stalin in a way that no previous leader, including Churchill, incidentally, had never actually got the, the measure of Stalin. This comes out in Andrew's book in, a fa in fascinating detail that, you know, you're in Potsdam, the peace great uh, what do we do with Germany conference had begun with Churchill as prime minister. Stalin must have been bemused at the thought that he'd gone back for a, to fight a general election. And then who comes back but Attlee with his tank. He was going to put Dalton in as foreign secretary, as Andrew points out. But Attlee said very wisely, he decided he needed a tank rather than a sniper. So Stalin, you know, the conference has been adjourned so the Brits could have a general election. And Stalin is suddenly faced with Attlee, who was very quiet through all this, as was his one. And and there was there was Bevin. But when the Schumann plan came out, although Bevin was was fighting to give Germany a democratic future in the sense of creating what he created in West Germany. Nobody bothered to tell him about the Schumann plan until it came out. So it started on the wrong foot. You know, it would that Britain was involved from the start, of course. But whether it comes to imperialism or what was happening in Cyprus and all of that, I mean, he did have rather a lot on his plate, did Ernie, in dealing with not just who was in front of him, Stalin, but dealing with the Americans who under Truman wanted to get out within two years and Truman's secretary of state at the time before Marshall came along, Burns, who was thoroughly charmed by Stalin, thought he was a very decent chap. And that's the way the negotiations were heading until the tank rolled in, i.e. Ernest Bevin. Now, why was it that the tank sort of got Stalin so quickly and why was it that he was so fiercely anti-communist when... There might, as I think you say in your review, Alan, you know, the, the temptation of 
what communism stood for might on the face of it have appealed to him. Can I, can I just say, because I want to get the, the balance right in this discussion, it's my view, which I, I try to bring out in the book, that uh, Bevan is the greatest foreign secretary this country has had. And the fundamental reason for that is he got the measure of Stalin and saw him off. And all of the other things we've talked about are, are much lesser considerations than the fact that Western Europe could have been overrun by Stalin in the way Eastern Europe was if we hadn't had a foreign secretary and, and a Labour government which understood from the beginning that Stalin and communism were fundamentally the same as Hitler and fascism. They were both revolutionary totalitarian regimes with complete contempt for human life with megalomaniac leaders who basically just wanted uh, nations and other peoples to be pawns and used ideology as a tool in, in that game. Now, why did Ernie Bevin understand that so well? Well, this goes to the heart of him as a trade union leader because he'd had to deal with the communists for the previous 30 years. Every stage in his leadership of the Transport and General Workers Union, right from the end of the First World War, when, of course, uh, you get the communist takeover in Russia, right through to the depths of the Second World War. He's having to fight communist insurgents all the way through his union. Now, there's a famous strike in 1937, begun in the Holloway bus garage in North London, ironically in the heart of Jeremy Corbyn's constituency, where the communists have taken control of the local bus committee and Ernie has to spend all his time sorting this thing out and then expelling the communists because what they want is another general strike. So he really gets the measure of these guys. And when he turns up at Potsdam, what's really interesting is he says to a senior American there, I've got no problem dealing with this Stalin character. I've seen him before in the Transport and General Workers Union. He's like these thugs, these communist thugs, who have spent the last 30 years trying to take the thing over. So he does understand them in a way that these more effete, you know, Lord Halifax-type aristocrats, if anything, they had a, a slightly too elevated view of the, of the Stalins and the Hitlers because they saw in them a level of refinement which came with holding high office, which never, never for one moment fooled down-to-earth Ernie Bevin. I think this is a thing that people don't understand about the trade union movement, the fact that it does owe more to Methodism than, than Marxism, and the fact that you know, from, the, from the earliest days, it's been a struggle between democratic socialism and revolutionary socialism. And after 1917, there were so many in the labour movement who felt that Soviet Russia was their lodestar that it was difficult to resist it. Bevin had been, so far as he was brought up by anyone, I mean, you know, his mother died when he was eight. He never knew who his father was and was working from the age of 11. But the far as he'd, so far as he'd had any education, it was from the church. His mother was a Methodist, wasn't she, uh, Andrew? A non-conformist Methodist. And so that was part of his reason. But also, I came up in the same movement. There were communists all around. They were still allowed to be delegates to Labour Party conference as part of union delegations right up until 1965, by the way. So Ernie was used to dealing with these characters, as every leader in the trade union movement. Very few of them were communists, although, of course, the mine workers during the general strike, A.J. Cook, who led the mine workers, was not only a, a communist, but a great admirer of Lenin. And to them, negotiation was anathema. You know, and Ernie was the great negotiator. He wanted to get deals. And when he got deals for his people, he would call them working class people, 
when he got a wage settlement or some kind of agreement on hours, and he dealt with hundreds of thousands of these negotiated agreements, he would set up a framework for future negotiations because he realized that unless you had a framework to negotiate in, you you know, you were never going to achieve anything. So this was his great I mean, he was build, 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 not just Transport House, not just the Transport and General Workers Union, not just the Daily Herald, but thousands upon thousands of agreements that enhance the lives of working people. And is this this fight that we see in Bevan's life and worldview between democratic socialism and, you know, revolutionary, the, the, the kind of attempt in the Labour movement to kick out the trots? and reform it in a democratic lines. Is that something that just happens in exactly the same way? You know, is what we saw in the 90s, what we've been seeing recently, is that a repetition of what Bevin's years went through or does it, does it change? Well, I was struck when I wrote the book by the continuities. Of course, circumstances always change to some extent. But um, AJ Cook, who uh, Anna Johnson has just referred to, who was the communist leader of the miners who basically caused the, the, the general strike in 1926, who I'd never really studied before, AJ Cook is reincarnated in the, in the 1970s and 80s in Arthur Scargill. I mean, they're remarkably similar. Indeed, it's very clear to me from studying the 20s and 30s and the traditions which were established that Arthur Scargill saw himself in the tradition. Scargill, when he was young, was also a young communist and saw himself leading in a, in a very similar tradition. I, I watched videos of A.J. Cook speaking. You know, when you see Arthur Scargill, it's as if A.J. Cook has been, has, has been reincarnated. And so these debates do continue. And as I look at the big problem of Ernie Bevin's reputation and why it's vanished, part of the reason why, unfortunately, is it wasn't nurtured and advanced by the trade union movement itself. The best, if uh, Alan will forgive my making this point, but I, th I think I need to make it, the best Bevinist leader of a trade union in the last 30 years has been Alan Johnson himself. He's, indeed, it's very striking. He's told us that he read when he became a young trade unionist, he read the first volume of Alan Bullock. That itself is a very important historical fact, which the spectator has just revealed That's my to reputation us. gone in he, the trade union. He saw himself in that tradition. And I know from my dad and others that there was nobody better at, at doing deals and advancing the practical interests of his members than Alan Johnson. He was very much in the Bevan tradition. And also, of course, he then went to the heart of the... Labour leadership too, went into Parliament and became a Cabinet Minister and so on. But I'm afraid, unfortunately, the dominant strand in modern trade unionism, unfortunately, hasn't been that strand. But Alan will come and tell us his view in a moment. It's very, very telling that for the last 10 years, the leader of Ernie Bevin's own union, the Transport and General Workers Union, now called Unite, has been Len McCluskey. Now, I cannot imagine somebody who Ernie Bevin would have taken against more than Len McCluskey. The idea of supporting Jeremy Corbyn in office as leader of the Labour Party for five years, we know what Ernie would have thought of that, because he had the equivalent of Jeremy Corbyn in, in the 1930s. He was a guy called George Lansbury, who was into all of the international peace movements, never outbid when it came to conciliating the communists and the left, refused to support the League of Nations in the use of military force to prevent Mussolini going into Ethiopia. What did Ernie do then? He rallied the trade unions and the Labour Party conference to get 
George Lansbury out, which is what led to Clem Attlee becoming leader of the Labour Party. And by the way, I think in Keir Starmer, we might have a new Clem Attlee today. So if you look at how Ernie dealt with the Labour politics of the 1930s, how he saw off the communists, he saw off these fellow traveller, very weak Labour leaders at national level, and compare it with Len McCluskey, I'm afraid this really is chalk and cheese. But Andrew's just explained why Bevin is kind of persona non grata in the trade union movement. Those two incidents, which he describes brilliantly in the book, by the way. First of all, the miners' strike. A.J. Cook is seen as the hero, the man who would brook no compromise whatsoever. And in the end, saw the miners starve. He's brilliant. A million miners starve back to work. Bevin, who from first to last in the Great Strike, although he'd only just got onto the TUC General Council, he managed to put himself at the centre of all this, constantly looking for formations and words and agreements and negotiations. The negotiator in labour terms is the pariah. The man who holds out and never compromises is the hero, which is bizarre. But here's, here's a point. When Bevin became Minister of Labour, which meant he was kind of in the, in the war, he had these enormous powers to direct anyone to do anything, but he was in charge of everything, including the mines. He brought the miners' pay back up to what it was pre the cuts that caused the general strike, number one. And number two, as Andrew just mentioned, that conference in Margate where Ernie Bevin left Lansbury, who said he was wrestling with his conscience. This was to stop fascists, incidentally, moving into what was then called Abyssinia, is now Ethiopia. He left him as a little puddle at the Margate conference, did Bevin. He destroyed him. He had to resign six days later. So what came out of the general strike with Bevin, in the end, was the miners got their money and their wages boosted and nationalisation of coal, which was their big lodestar. What came out of Margate destroying Lansbury was Clement Attlee, the most successful leader, with one exception, I would say, I think <laughs> in we'd Labour agree Party on history. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One thing that intrigues me about Bevan, maybe Andrew could say, he was very pro us having a nuclear bomb. Yeah, he, he was. Indeed, he, he and Attlee started the nuclear deterrent. He did it for two reasons. Firstly, and here I completely agree with him, you could not be a first-rate global power in the late 40s unless you had the bomb. Of course, what you wanted then was uh, to stop proliferation and uh, you wanted responsible leadership and so on. But the idea of Stalin having the bomb alone on this Eurasian continent would have been anathema to to liberty and good foreign relations. But the other reason is quite telling, and it goes to a point that Alan just made a a few moments ago. In the crucial first two years after 1945, the United States under Truman and Secretary of State Burns seeks to triangulate between Britain and Russia. What Truman wants is a deal with Stalin and a deal with Stalin crucially on Germany. What they're aiming for is a demilitarised but united Germany. Now, if that had happened, I mean, you can never know know, precisely what will happen in counterfactual situations, but it's very likely that if that had happened, the whole of Germany would have come under Soviet control, probably in stages. You would have had something like Czechoslovakia or some kind of popular front government to begin with, with a communist coup and so on. 
And it's because of the distrust that there is between Attlee and Bevin on the one hand and Truman and Burns on the other that Bevin is so absolutely determined to have the nuclear deterrent. And the famous quote that everyone rolls out where he says, we've got to have this thing over here and we've got to have the Union Jack on it. The sentence before what Ernie says is, I do not want any future foreign secretary talked to in the way that Jimmy Burns has just talked to me. No, this was about power and Ernie Bevin understood power and he understood that if Britain was going to be able to hold its own with the United States in a genuine transatlantic partnership, then we had to be absolutely clear that we were going to be robust in the defence of liberty and seeing off Stalin and that by doing that ourselves, we would put more backbone into the Americans. Now, this isn't the way that this story is usually told, particularly by the left who somehow think we were kowtowing to the Americans, which in fact is the opposite of the truth. The reason why Attlee and Bevin get the nuclear deterrent is precisely so we can line up the Americans behind a transatlantic alliance, which otherwise there was a real danger the Americans were going to abandon. And I think this historical story needs to be told because unfortunately the left has been telling the wrong story about this and it became fashionable to think that somehow it was a big mistake and a kind of moral calamity to have engaged in proper defence policy when Michael Foote and others got going on their life of Anir and Bevin and these great heroes who made all these great speeches about why we should do nuclear disarmament. But isn't there a great irony, Andrew, given what you just mentioned about Bevin saying, I can't go into another meeting like the one I've just had with James Burns, that Nye Bevan, at his last speech to conference, as shadow foreign secretary, says famously, do not send me naked into the negotiating chamber. Bevan became a Bevinite Right That's at the completely end, true. But then that tends to be the case. One of the things I also discovered in writing the book is I hadn't realised how unpopular the Attlee government is with the left in the 1950s. They hated it. Indeed, even Bevan himself, much sainted on the left, and of course who I hugely admire for creating the NHS, he essentially ran against the government of which he'd been a member of in a, in a similar way to the way that Tony Benn in the 1970s runs against the Wilson government which he too had been a member of. This betrayal narrative unfortunately goes to the heart of the left and it's part of the reason why we have such difficulty uniting on the great successes of these governments. If, you know, if I look at the three Labour governments there have been, majority Labour governments, Attlee, Wilson, Blair, looking back at them with Cool, you know, in a cool analytical way. They all made mistakes, all governments make mistakes. But they were phenomenal vehicles for social democratic advance. The welfare state, Attlee, all of those great liberal and social reforms and stability with the trade unions with Wilson and massive social advance, the minimum wage, the refoundation of the NHS and the public services under Blair. But the way that the left talk about them, you'd think that from day one, what these Labour prime ministers were seeking to do was to betray the Labour movement. And unfortunately, that becomes too much the narrative. Yeah. Can you give a sense of what, I mean, you know, we've talked very well and fully about his politics. What was he like as a man? What was his character? I mean, did he, did he have a life outside politics? Because I, I, I always try to bring, when I write about people, them to life fully. He never, so far as I'm aware, and I did my best to find out, I don't think he ever had any affairs. He was married to Flo, who was um, the daughter of a Bristol wine taster in his mid-twenties. They went to the music hall, they had quite a lot of shared pursuits, but he never, as far as I'm aware, had a, an adventurous sex life beyond that. 
he had been a teetotaler in his youth because his mum, as we've just said, was a, uh, was a Methodist through and through. But he certainly more than made up for that. By his mid-twenties, he was on, <laughs> on the bottle. And, so, and you know, it was said of him that alcohol was to Ernie Bevin as a petrol is to a car. I mean, that, that's why he was like that. He spent the, his, as well. his main subject of conversation, like Churchill, was himself. I mean, he just loved talking about himself and all his exploits, and he could go on and on and on about that for hours with all these acolytes who would, who would listen as he repeated his stories endlessly. And he was a mixture of the very endearing, because he was a very human person who did care about other people. He could be very bruising, but he, had, he commanded huge loyalty and he gave huge loyalty. It's very striking that the major relationships in his life, Flo, his wife, Clem Attlee, who he'd worked with for the best part of 20 years as leader of the Labour Party, Churchill during the war, Guy Deakin, who was his deputy at the Transport and General Workers' Union, who did that for 20 years and took on the job from him, who modelled himself on Ernie Bevan. It's very telling, you know, complete with the cigars, you know, he looked like him, the same dress and all of that. He was um, both an egomaniac, but a very human one who commanded huge loyalty. And that's very Churchillian and telling the story of that and the kind of hero worship which he engendered amongst those people who worked for him, including all these young diplomats in the Foreign Office, who loved, spent the next 50 years telling all their stories of Ernie, you know, first time he had caviar, you know, isn't this paste fishy? You know, all these stories, don't use mutatis mutandis, I never learned Greek, you know, all these sorts of things. They spent all their time talking about them because he was this great man who was so right on the big issues, but was so completely foreign to them as a human being. The other thing I take issue with Andrew's brilliant book in review is Andrew says that he that by the time he went into government, uh, he wasn't working class. He'd kind of moved beyond his class. I don't think that's true at all. And I liken it in my review to saying that the, Mar- the, the Marquis of Bath you know, ceased to be an aristocrat when he put on a caftan and moved into a cottage on his estate. Of course, he was still... <laughs> he was still an aristocrat. And Bevin was demonstrably still the same Bevin that drove that, the Drayman in Bristol. And you actually use a great quote, Andrew, that I think comes from an obituary in the News Chronicle after Ernie had died. And they said that Ernest Bevin was not a working man who became a statesman. He remained a working man who added statesmanship. In this, he was the first of his kind. And I think that's that's true. I mean, because he, his suits got smarter, because he lived in more salubrious surroundings, probably, incidentally, in a trade TNG house, TNG flat. That's what unions used to do. If you came up from Bristol to be working their headquarters, they, they had a flat or a house. And the fact that he smoked cigars did not make him any less working class. You're not taking that away from my hero. <laughs> <laughs> what I was trying to argue, actually, wasn't he stopped being working class in a fundamental way? He didn't. But he also became, became to some extent, pan-class. Many of it, the, the, the features of his life were middle class. And this is part of the reason why he was able to relate to people so well, is that he did have this kind of pan-class appeal without ever losing the working-class element. What I found so poignant about the quote, though, which Alan has just, just given us, and which I spend the last chapter of the book discussing, is that at the time, people thought that Ernie Bevin, you know, this working man, 
trade union leader who becomes a pillar of the state and effectively the number two figure in a Labour government in some respects, co-number one figure in the relationship he had with Attlee. People thought that this was the first, going to be the first of its kind and there'll be a whole string of Ernie Bevins afterwards. Ernie would have been absolutely staggered and appalled that Ernie Bevin has been the first and last of his kind since the 1940s and I think that's very, very poignant. There were lots of us 10, 15 years ago who thought that the second Ernie Bevan would be Alan Johnson. Well, maybe it still will be. Who knows? Alan well, might make was... a great return to, <laughs> to, to, to politics. But I'd, I'd love yeah. Alan's view now on how do we get the next Ernie Bevan? How do we get back to this tradition of really serious union figures who also managed to command Middle England in the way that Ernie Bevan did? Well, just to point out one thing, because I came in for a completely different route. I mean, I left the union and stood for Parliament in a seat and then worked my way up. Ernie Bevan, of course, never gave up General Secretary of the TNG. He was seconded as Minister of Labour. He gave it up after 45 when he became Foreign Secretary. But he stayed you know, with, a, with an interim substitute leader of the TNG while he went off and was virtually, as Andrew says in the book, a trade union leader in Whitehall. He, he acted just like a trade... The, the civil servants were his shop stewards. Uh, so he came in right at the top. The only time that was repeated was about 20 years later with Frank Cousins, another TNG general secretary who Wilson brought in to be his minister for technology. And once again, they waited six months to try and find a seat for him because he couldn't go into parliament until he had a constituency. But unlike Bevan, it was a huge, huge failure. And it's never happened since. And I'd say there's a couple of reasons for that. One, ironically, in the war, power went with trade unions down to shop stewards in a way that it that Bevin never had to face in the TNG and the shop steward movement that in the end you know became the power base in the car industry if you think of Red Robbo and all that on the docks in construction trade union leaders couldn't dominate a union in the way that Ernest Bevin dominated it that was one change the other was really it's tied in with the demise of the decline of the trade union movement I mean, I think we're back to the level of members that Ernest Bevin would have had in the late 30s, in total, six million trade unionists. But certainly they've struggled, as they've struggled everywhere, to come to terms with a working environment where you haven't got masses of men, it was always men, going into the shipyards, going down the coal mines, you know, working in, 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 in other industries. Even in my industry, in telecommunications, they're all separate now. And that's more difficult to organise. So they've never found a route to that. But the other thing I say is lots of great trade unionists have come through, not in the way that Bevin did, perhaps. If I think of George Robertson, came from the GMB, ended up as a very distinguished Secretary General of NATO, as well as being a Labour Defence Secretary. Think about Margaret Bonfield, who was the first woman cabinet minister who came from the shop workers. That was pre-Bevin, I know. But many of um, Andrew's colleagues in the House of Lords were distinguished trade unionists who are making it, Jeannie Drake, John Monks, making a contribution now to politics, perhaps not in the same grand way. I'd, I doubt if we'll ever, I mean, he used to say, didn't he, rather uh, arrogantly that he was one in, one in a million, did Bevin. He probably was, 
in that sense of taking a great dominant trade union figure and bringing them into government. As I say, it was tried with Cousins and failed, and I doubt if it would happen again. And it certainly didn't happen with me. Number one, I wasn't a dominant figure. Number two, I had to come in and stand in Hull West and Hessel and then become Parliamentary Undersecretary, Minister of State, Secretary of State. So, you know, I think I did my time at the coalface. Yeah, but there are many of us, Alan, who wanted you also then to add on to that leader of the Labour Party. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll <laughs> carry then, on writing then, the books and if then, you don't mind. Then the full <laughs> Bevin story would have been completed. Can I, can I just say one thing? Because I changed my view on this. I thought that maybe it was social conditions and political conditions changing that meant that we couldn't have another Bevin. And Alan makes very, very good points about how it was hard to become a dominant trade union leader with the rise of the shop steward movement, which I hadn't properly considered. And that itself is really interesting. However, when I was considering this issue about Bevin as a kind of international figure, there are other countries that have political systems not a million miles away from ours, where big trade union figures continued to play a role and still do up to the present day. I was very struck comparing Australia and Sweden, both of which have political systems which, which a, a century ago weren't that far apart from ours in some respects in terms of labour movements and trade union movements that were starting to become political parties and getting parliamentary representation. In both of those countries, trade union leaders, rather as in Britain, became big figures inside the Labour Party. It didn't stop in the 40s and 50s in some of those other countries. The current Prime Minister of Sweden, Lerven, himself set up a trade union 30 years ago, very much like the TNG, unionising the big new sectors which hadn't been properly unionised in Sweden. And then when the Social Democrats weren't doing well in an election, he was then parachuted into Parliament from outside, like Ernie Bevan in 1940, and became leader of the Swedish Social Democrats and is now Prime Minister. And more than half of all of the Australian Prime Minister, Labour Prime Ministers there, there, there have been, right up to and including Julia Gillard, but but they're famously Bob Hawke in the, in the 1980s, were not just trade unionists before, and as Alan says, people like George Robertson have been trade unionists, but were themselves trade union leaders before they became Labour leaders. So I'm less charitable to the British trade union movement. I think it was unfortunately a failure, a historical failure of the post-1950s trade union movement, that it didn't produce first-rate leaders who went into Labour politics, with one or two distinguished exceptions, which Alan, I think, is the most distinguished. It was a failure, and it's something we should learn from and put right, because it's not exactly as if there's a shortage of opportunities for big national leadership, including big industrial mobilisation, you know, all those care workers, gig workers, and so on, if there was an Ernie Bevin out there who put their mind to it. We shall not see his like again, but perhaps we will. Let's hope. Alan Johnson, Andrew Adonis, thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, we very much hope that you'll subscribe on your podcast provider of choice and or rate and review us. Well, especially if you liked it. If you hated it, don't, don't feel you have to review it. And equally, if there's something that you wanted to ask us about, something you think we could do better or something you enjoyed, please do send us your feedback to podcast at spectator.co.uk. Thanks again for listening and please join us for our next episode.
Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher.